do you have the theme music queued up by any chance? You want to do that? Yeah, right let's off? do that at the beginning. Okay. It's a crappy podcast, Tom, but we have a theme music. Walzer Automotive presents Car Selling Secrets. We are back. 41st, 40th episode, I think. Uh, it's the coldest one of 2020. Car Selling Secrets with... Alex, Alex. Alex. Bernard There she is. And special guest, Tom Horner. And Ebrant Bernard. Melissa Bernard. And, no and Catherine and Tom. And there they are. Wow, that was I just so want Catherine s- and Tom over there. incredibly smooth. So seamless. We'll be right back after this exciting announcement. Michael Bryant, Bradshaw and Bryant. So what's the latest? Oh, the latest is we're representing people who are injured through no fault of their own. Uh, people come to us, we talk to them about what their rights are. We talk to them about things that, you know, adjusters would call them up and ask them about. And we represent people in order to get them justice for the injured. And have been for a long time. Very, very successful. No question. I, I, you know, I do meet a lot of your clients. They come up to me on the street and whatever, and they talk about this, that, or the other thing. And they both say... Why do you guys hang out with Doug Sprinthal? <laughs> and I just had no answer for <laughs> He just looks away, you big baby. In any case, that's the whole deal. So people, they got any problem whatsoever, personal injury or other legal problems, whatever, they just reach out to Brad, Sean, Bryant. Yeah, Joe and I have both been president of the trial lawyers for the state. So we talk to people about all sorts of issues. The consultation is always free, and that's what we do. Michael Bryant, Brad, Sean, Bryant. We are back. Special guest Tom Horner. Uh, Tom is a Minnesotan that's been active in politics pretty much his whole career. He worked for Dave Durenberger. Uh, he ran as an independent in 2010, which is about the first time I saw you speak to uh, the Auto Dealers Association. I was really impressed by some of the ideas you had. I did do a little Googling about the 2010 gubernatorial race, and I... You captured almost twelve percent of the in, of the vote running as an independent. Yep, I did. I, I you know it was a great time. Um, I never had any interest in being a candidate, but loved the year um, and and found it was just a fabulous experience. But but it taught me some important lessons, not least of which is that. I won the editorial endorsement of something like thirty-seven out of the thirty-eight Minnesota newspapers that endorsed a candidate, and won twelve percent of the vote. And you Shows get, you the diminishing influence of editorial writers. Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah. Dur- you got Dernberger and Quee and uh, Arnie Carlson. I had a great group of, of supporters, and on the Democratic side, people like Mike Sarisi were were supporters. So, uh, so you might a be a true middle of the road independent, which means yes. that after we get done with the initial story of your first automobile, we'll probably spend a lot of time talking politics. So, terrific. Tell us about your first car, Tom. Well, it, it, it was a series of mistakes. The first mistake is that I went down to Lake Street um, in 1968 to buy a car. That was at a time when you know Lake Street was mostly used car lots. Yeah, they're and, all criminals. And, I know and some I of those guys. And, and not particularly <laughs> reputable. That was the first mistake. The second mistake was I went down with the idea that, you know, at 18, 19 years old, whatever I was, I wanted a hot car. That would have been great if I had a few more dollars in my pocket. <laughs> I ended up with a 1963 Impala Supersport with the, the Chevrolet 283 engine in yeah. it, which typically had been a, a, a great engine. This one had been through a few too many uh, uh, extreme events, I think. Um, and, and so as the old line goes, you know, you'd pull into the gas station and um, check the gas and fill it with oil. Yeah. Um, it, it just uh, burned uh, too much oil, way too much oil. Uh, but, but a fun car and had it for about a year and finally uh, got rid of it. So I know some, I've talked to some of those guys. They're mostly dead now that worked on Lake Street in the 50s and 60s. And yes. here was the used car reconditioning process. You would wax the car, clean out the interior, and then the clocker would come by. And the clocker was the guy that would hang upside down under the dashboard and roll back the odometer. <laughs> yep, yep. And then wasn't there something you could do to to um, diminish the oil burning for about the first thousand right. miles? Right, yeah, you put really thick stuff right. in it. Like, that's what right. STP was, essentially. It would seal up the motor. So, yeah, um, 
none Walzer Automotive Group had none of those dealerships yeah, uh, for anybody uh, listening. But that that's actually the, that was the way it was. But a you know beautiful car in the showroom floor and yeah. and three speed on the column and and uh, that great two eighty three engine. You had a, an Impala with a three speed on the column. Yep, but the Super Sport. Now for those of you that were uh, born after. In 1975, <laughs> it, used to, it was a manual transition right. transmission, but the shifter was on the steering column itself. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. You've probably yeah. seen it in really old movies, and yeah. that's called the vernacular is three on the tree. Right. That Tom, was mine. Tom, that did you ever have, have a stick shift car? Uh, yes, I did, and I really sucked at it. <laughs> I just like to point that out. Not good. Not good at all. I just, you know. I assumed you that this was the time, because Tom Horner already said he right. did, so I assumed you were talking to me. Yes, yeah, right, so I was trying I? to draw you into the conversation. It's a technique that I've been well, working on. I'm learning. <laughs> I'm learning things by listening. It's a good thing. Well, let's start talking politics. We were talking yeah. about this in the first hour, and Tom and I both really don't understand the uh, phase one of the China trade deal. What, uh, tell us what you, in your opinion, what's going on, Tom? Um, that at best it might be a good first step, and and so let's put the the most positive spin on it and and say that you know it at least gets China to the negotiating table. Um, but there aren't a lot of tangibles in there. So there are some vague promises that China is going to buy more agricultural products, um, but. You know, the, the United States won't significantly reduce a lot of the tariffs. China won't reduce a lot of the tariffs. Uh, and the, the enforcement provisions are a, a, at best vague. I think what it does do is maybe open the door to, to round two. But, but, but here's the problem with, with the, the agreement wherever it ends up, and, and that is when you're engaged in just bilateral negotiations, just the United States and, and China, Everybody knows that at some point China is going to cheat again. Might be a year down the road, might be two years down the road. You're so it's only like the Russian Olympic team. Right, right, exactly. Okay. Your, your only tool, if you're the United States engaged one-on-one -on -one with China, is to go back and say, well, we're going to increase the tariffs again. Well, so what you're saying is we're going to punish United States consumers, manufacturers, in order to hold China accountable. Instead of working through a multilateral ap approach where you, you involve a lot of countries to say, look, we're all going to stop buying from you. We're all going to stop selling to, to you unless you obey the rules. That's what, what the, the World Trade Organization is, is supposed to do. So fix the problems with the World Trade Organization. The WTO is kind of on the ropes, isn't it? Well, it is. Uh, but part of it is because Trump has pulled the rug out from under yeah. them. I mean, the, the United States is the biggest funder of the World Trade Organization. Um, Trump has refused to, to appoint new judges to, to the panel, um, kind of leaves it in, in limbo. Um, and there have been some problems with it, but it could be made more effective. Uh, so, so you look down the road, and you got to figure out how are you going to hold China accountable. And, and right now, I mean, it has exacted the the trade uh, war has exacted a very heavy toll on the United States. I mean, you look at manufacturing. Manufacturing by the key index is at its lowest point in ten years in this country. Farmers fear that they have lost markets, not just over the next growing season, but permanently to, to South America in particular. Those are really worrisome trends. If China um, stays true to their word of purchasing $200 billion or whatever it was of mostly agricultural goods, that would probably erase that. But you're saying that y yes, but there's no timeline. So it, it it's 200 million over 200 yeah 200 million over what timeline, um, and, and how's that going to be enforced? You know, China just made a huge purchase of soybeans from South America and has some long-term contracts with South America. Oh, okay, I have an ice cream headache. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing is simple in this world. <laughs> I know. It just, um, it you know, I think b b before we move on, I, I think the other question that ought to be examined is, um, is there really a problem if the United States runs trade deficits? I, I mean, we, right. we, we, we run a trade deficit in part because we're a very wealthy country with consumers who have done very well over the last several years who have the means to buy foreign goods. If China or Vietnam or Mexico or any other country can produce a good 
that is high quality and cheaper, well, there, there's some economic logic that says, okay, let's buy it from them. In the meantime, you know, there are a lot of things where the United States does particularly well. L let's really invest in those areas. Where we ought to be focusing on is how do we protect our technology transfer? How do we make sure? I, I was sure? about to say that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm not smart enough to realize if uh, trade imbalance is a good or a bad thing. I've read a lot of things that say, you know, it, it's not that big a deal. But one of the things that this phase one thing seemed to attempt to address was intellectual property. And that, to me, is a good thing. I, obviously, they haven't so solved it yet, right. but we may have gotten farther with that than, than we have in the past. Maybe, maybe, although in phase one, what they've done is both agreed that it's important, so let's deal with it next time, <laughs> you know. So, so they really haven't added any teeth to it, no substance to it. Um, and again, would it have been better if we had done that through um, the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the, the TPP, TPP that, that Trump turned his back on, um, where, where you had multiple countries involved, maybe. Yeah, no, I tried to understand the TPP as well, and there the, people were polar extremes out of both parties. Honestly, there were right. a lot of Democrats that thought it was absolutely terrible, and some thought it was the best thing since uh, sliced bread. So, yeah, yeah, you know, we just it, it it it's part of the problem today in that we don't really have very thoughtful, in-depth conversations about core issues, about really what's at the heart of it. What kind of a country do we want to be? What's in our best interest, not today, tomorrow, but five years from now, 10 years from now? And, and we need to start having those conversations, not just around trade, but around more broadly economic policy, tax policy. What is the role of government in helping people at times in their lives when they're vulnerable? What should be the role of the United States in, in foreign affairs and particularly as, as the world's policeman. What role should we play with North Korea, the Mideast, or any number of other hotspots around the country? And we gotta figure out how to have those conversations in ways that just don't break down to, I'm a Republican, therefore, or I'm a Democrat, therefore. Um, we, we, we need to, to figure out how can engage people in, in really substantive ways looking to the future. Yeah, you know, I've often thought that it would be interesting if people that are running for public office were not affiliated with parties because yeah. it would force people to actually listen to it would it we've kind of turned it into a football game and 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 this isn't it's myopic to think that this is a recent problem. I mean it's it's, it's since the, you know, constitutional debates that this has been going on, so it's it's singularly American, but it and it's a fantasy, but it would force people to listen to what somebody really thinks is a solution to identifying a problem and what a p possible solution would be. Yeah, so one of the challenges now is, is that you know, both the major parties have, have become really good at selecting people to run for office who, who excel as candidates but have no ability at governance. And, and so you have a guy like Donald Trump who, who is a terrific candidate in that he can rally the base, he can attract attention, he can dominate an agenda. But I, I think everybody would agree that at least some shortcomings at, at governance. But you look at a guy like Bernie Sanders. Does anybody really think that Bernie Sanders is going to be able to pull together Republicans and Democrats in, in a coherent, cohesive policy for the future? I don't think there are many who, uh, other than the hardcore believers, but Bernie Sanders is a terrific candidate because, again, he can dominate an agenda. We've got to figure out how do you promote candidates who, who have the ability to govern once they're elected, and how do we get to campaigns that really focus on these kinds of discussions? So maybe we ought to look more closely at some of the political reforms that are out there, like ranked choice voting, where, where you don't have that, that fear factor. Go back to my campaign in 2010 where we had three credible candidates running for governor. Dayton, Emmer, and I had more than two dozen debates, substantive debates, talking about issues. Each of us, for the first time, I think, in Minnesota's history, put out specific budgets, budget proposals as candidates when the state was facing a, a shortfall. That yeah, was, we were in tough times know, back then. For those who don't remember, we were in a financial 
It's the opposite of where we are today. Right. We were facing a $6 billion shortfall against what was then a $30 billion budget. I mean, you know, a 20% budget shortfall. And and each of us put out substantive um, uh, proposals. You know, Dayton taxed the rich. Emma was going to cut spending, and I was going to do a mix and, and a lot of reform. But people had a choice, and they could, could hear what it would be like. And, you know, whether you agree or disagree with them, to his credit, I mean, Dayton largely delivered on his promises. I happen to disagree with what his promises were and the programs that he implemented, but he did deliver on his promises. People had that choice, to, to, to had that opportunity to make that choice. I've got a question for a, you. We're, oh, go ahead, Tom. No, I just have one question for Tom. Tom. Why is it always the people who already have money think we should raise taxes? Like people like Mark Dayton, who's already <laughs> worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So he's already got his money. What does yeah, he care? Because he can afford it. Yeah, it's <laughs> disgusting. That's the bottom line. Yeah, but Tom, I, look, it, I agree. But, but, but I think the issue, and we you know, keep getting pushed off into these bilateral choices where yeah, we, we get yeah. pushed to, should you raise taxes or should you cut taxes? Well, there's a lot of ground in between. I mean, I think what we ought to do is right. really rethink our tax system and, and get away from an income-based tax system to, to a consumption tax and, and reward investment, reward savings, um, and, and tax spending. It's I fair, it. you know, but, but that takes some courage. In, in 2009, Palenti had, Governor Palenti had a commission made up of largely of Republicans, business people, and they came back with a very thoughtful proposal that said pretty much exactly that. It was dead on arrival because in order to cut some taxes, you have to raise other taxes, and Republicans weren't willing to do that. Then you turn it over to the Democrats, and they think that, that a sales tax is, is regressive. It's not. It can be designed in a way that is incredibly fair, incredibly yep. protective of, of low-income people, and, and much more fair. Tom, and it reflects the economy we have today. We've got to take a quick yep. break, and when we come back, I want to find out if the Republicans are still pissed at you. <laughs> <laughs> right. We'll be right back. <laughs> Tom Bernard here, and with me is the CEO of North American Banking Company, Michael Bilski. Tell me, Michael, I was reading on your website that one of your bankers has worked with a customer for more than 30 years. It's a long time for any business relationship. Is that common? Not only 30 years, but two generations. Our great client, Northland Fastening Systems. 30 years is definitely not common for a lot of bankers, but Brad has developed a relationship with that trusted customer that has allowed them to show steady growth every year they've been together. Building the relationship of trust is what we do best. It allows us to make quick deals that benefit them and all of our business customers. The cool thing is that it gives us a chance to be more than your banker, hopefully a partner, and maybe even a friend. I have never liked you, by the way. Why not bank with my banker, North American Banking Company, a better banking experience? Member FDIC, an equal housing lender. Thanks, friend. And you are? <laughs> Real nice. Chuck Nabla. <laughs> Chuck Nabla. <laughs> 2020 never looks so good. Tom Bernard here for Whiting Clinic LASIK and Cataract. With 2020 upon us, it's time to ditch the contacts and pitch the glasses. Take it from me. It's one of the best things you can do for yourself in the new year. I've never looked back from having LASIK myself, and with Dr. Whiting's unsurpassed experience, you can trust you're amongst the best in the business. Call 855-554-2020 or visit whitingclinic.com online to schedule your free LASIK consultation. The great people at Whiting Clinic will take fantastic care of you, just like they did for me. Call 855-554-2020 or visit whitingclinic.com online to schedule your free LASIK consultation. Imagine 2020 or better in 2020 and let 2020 be your best year yet with LASIK at Whiting Clinic. LASIK results may vary. Talk to your Whiting Clinic doctor about your individual outcome potential. There'll be peace when you are done. Lay your weary head to rest. Don't you cry no more. We're rocking out today, Andy. I asked you the question right before the break, and I was kind of kidding, but I bet uh, that they were pretty riled up. Well, they, the Republicans, when I ran, yes, they were. Y you know, but I think um, uh, a couple of things. One is that you know, I feel like I think a lot of moderate Republicans feel 
that that I didn't move away from the party as much as the party moved away from me. I mean, the, the Republican Party today is very different from the traditional Minnesota Republican Party of Elmer Anderson and Dave Durenberger and Arnie Carlson and Jim Ramstead and Bill Frenzel and on and on and on. You know, the, the group of people that, that Durenberger calls progressive Republicans. And I think they were. I mean, they were people who cared about the environment, cared about um, helping people at times in their lives when they were vulnerable, cared about thoughtful government, but also had a plan to make government smaller and more effective and more efficient. That's not the Republican Party today. It's not the Democratic Party either, but but certainly not the Republican Party. Um, and, and so, yes, I think there are a lot of, I know there are a lot of Republicans who still think that, that I cost Tom Emmer the election in 2010 and, and gave it to Mark Dayton. You know, I, I think, first of all, it's the arrogance that says only Republicans and Democrats get to put up candidates, and if you don't vote for our candidates, then then don't vote. I, well, I, and, I and, we, and Minnesota had a history, because Jesse got in in, what, 2000? Uh, or 98? 98, right. Yep, yep. You know, so... And 12%, I, that's the, my, my one of my son's turned 18 just before the midterms and I said you know I'd really like you to vote I don't care who you vote yeah. for but he goes okay dad let's so we went together and his comment was wow they have two different pot parties and they said yeah it's just <laughs> yeah, also right. ran they're going to get less than one percent <laughs> right. of the vote but right. I mean, you get almost 12 percent which is that, that's a significant number yeah, it is. And, you know, the challenge for any third-party candidate always is you got to get into second place. Otherwise, it, it's the fear factor. I mean, I, I can't tell you uh, how many attacks there were. Right after the, the primary, when you get into the general election season, late August, early September, and people are starting to pay attention, there was about 10 days there before I was able to raise my money where every single day the mailbox of swing voters in Minnesota would have a hit piece on me. And one day it would be blue with Democrats saying, well, you know, Horner, good guy, but he's way too conservative for Minnesota, and here are some things. And the next day it would be red and be Republicans saying, well, you know, Horner, not a bad guy, but boy, is he a liberal. <laughs> and, and it'd just be constant. Well, you know, I got up right underneath Emmer and just couldn't get over that, that bulge. Um, I think had I gotten into second place head-to-head -head with Dayton, I think I would have won. Um, but but if you can't get into second place, then people start to, to throw the, the fear factor and the wasted vote at you, that's right. and, and that's problematic. So explain to people what ranked voting is. I mean, I understand it, but I don't know yeah. that everybody does. So, do you think that's a realistic possibility in the state of Minnesota? Um, Yes, I do. So ranked choice voting essentially puts into the electoral system, the campaign system, the, the same kind of decision-making process that we make about every other choice in, in life. Rarely do we go to say, do I want A or B? You also get a choice of C, D, E, F. You, you look at the, the whole range and what's right for me, whether it's price or quality or color or whatever uh, criterion you want to use. In, in When it comes to, to campaigns, we too often say you get candidate A, a Democrat, or candidate B, a Republican, and that's it. What ranked choice voting allows is to say, I can vote for my first place candidate, but I really like this other person, and, and if my first place choice doesn't win, well, then I'd be okay with, with choice two or three. And so you get to cast a vote for first place, second place, third place. Then the, the election system, um, and now there is computer software that does this automatically, mm -hmm. um, will we'll start it out, and you keep dropping the one with the, the lowest vote total and reallocating that vote total until you get a candidate who has a majority of the vote. So you're electing majority candidates, which is important. Um, and secondly, and maybe most importantly, candidates now during the campaigns have to pay attention to am I winning votes and am I alienating votes? Now, it doesn't mean that you, you, you move off of your principles. It doesn't mean that, that you're going to be more of a wishy-washy candidate. What it says is, I want to have substance out there because that's what's going to win. And so, again, you look at 2010, it was a very substantive campaign with three credible candidates. So it is ranked choice vote 
going to to become a reality what's well, already happening in in some places um in in other states uh, maine uses it oh do they really yep for the yep, state elections yep yep huh. um in in uh, minnesota we have it in minneapolis st paul st louis park just went to it bloomington is considering it some other cities are are considering it what we really need in minnesota is for the legislature to allow all cities to make that choice uh, about their local elections. And when people see how well it works in local elections, then I think it will put enough pressure on the legislature to adopt it for statewide. So this is ground up. Are there any states that do it at the state level? Yeah, well, as I said, uh, Maine, 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 I'm Maine sorry. does it. Yep, Maine, Apparently Maine, wasn't Maine paying does, attention. No, that's okay. Maine, Maine does it. Um, and and, uh, and some other states are, are starting to, to consider it. So, hmm. yeah, there, there's a – now, Maine, you know, they, they keep challenging it, but, but so far still in place, and, um, and, and it has been effective. It works. It's, I, I spent my summers in Maine as a kid, and it's it's hard to picture them as being, you know, politically progressive. Well, yes, although, you know, again, they've got a tradition, something like Minnesota's, um, where uh, a strong citizen participation, strong grassroots, kind of that, that progressive citizen activism that, that you see in Minnesota. Um, and so one of their United States senators, Angus King, is, is an independent, um, caucuses with the Democrats, but, but is uh, of, of a very independent mind. Um, and, and they've got some innovative campaign finance laws. So there's a tradition there of that, that kind of grassroots pop populism that, that Minnesota has. So, yeah, I think it could work well. Maine is a lot like northern Minnesota, just with different accents. Yes, it's right. very, right. Being in both places is like, <laughs> you guys, you act like lobstermen. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, I think we could do those kinds of, of, of reforms. I think if, if we did some redistricting reform to, to take it out of the hands of, of legislators and put it into credible, qualified third-party commissions to, to uh, take a look at how should districts be drawn, I think that would be helpful. You know, really, when, when you look at how Republicans in Congress have have been so compliant to to President Trump. It is not because Trump has the ability to threaten them in the general election, but in the primary elections. You know, that's where the strength of, of a guy like Trump really is, um, to get somebody from the right to run against a, a, a Republican, knowing that, that there are so many districts that the the election is won or lost in the primary. Mm -hmm. It's either all Republican or all Democrat, and and so Trump leverages his power with Republicans by threatening to to find a more conservative candidate to to run in the uh, the, the primaries, and that keeps Republicans in line. We shouldn't have to deal with that. We we should have people who are in office because they they are people of principle and they can act on those principles, and we're losing that. And again, it's not just Republicans; it's it's both sides of the aisle. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, this isn't just a Republican issue. Right, right. In fact, I I, I think a big challenge today is we we have too many office holders, both Republicans and Democrats, who try to solve um, new problems with old solutions, and those old solutions are rooted in the constituencies they serve. So look at an issue like education reform. It is hard to argue, and this isn't to bash public education or teachers or anything, but it's hard to argue that all public schools in Minnesota are serving all students very well. I mean, you just there are some schools that are doing excellent, and there are other schools that, that just are, are completely failing for a lot of reasons, some of them having to do with the families and the communities and, and beyond the, the four walls of the school. But instead of figuring out why is it that we have an achievement gap, why is it that, that children of, of color, those in poverty, consistently perform at a lower level than, than white Minnesotans, and, we and just it's not just a little; it's dramatically. It's dramatically low. different. I mean, we, and, we, we, for the white kids in Minnesota, in the country, we rank up in the top among the best, and we're in the bottom of families right. of color. Right, huge disparity. And it's not just an issue of funding, and it's not just an issue of certain parts of the state. Look at Edina. 
Edina is probably one of the best funded districts in the country, not just in Minnesota. Edina has the same 25 to 30 percent achievement gap that North Minneapolis schools have. Is that Start, right? Starts at a higher level, but there's still that huge gap between white students and students of color. Even when you adjust for the open enrollment students or, or, or students who are coming in under some other program. So, so it's statewide and, and it's pervasive and it's not just funding. But Democrats, the achievement gap, well, let's throw more dollars at it because that's what Education Minnesota wants. Republicans, well, well let's just turn over vouchers and, and undermine the, the public schools. And there are better answers. Okay, we so know we, now we, answers. We, everybody's leaning in now, yeah, Tom. Yeah. How do we fix it? Well, I think, first of all, you look at the programs that are effective. So, and, and I'll give a plug for a, a board I serve on. I serve on um, a, a board called Serve Minnesota. Serve Minnesota runs AmeriCorps programs in Minnesota. Minnesota has one of the most robust, effective AmeriCorps programs in the country. There's a program that we created called Minnesota Reading Corps. Rigorous, evidence-based, um, based based on on science, we, we we have it evaluated every couple of years by the likes of the University of Chicago, so a top flight um, evaluation. So you're not just grading yourself. Exactly. Okay, I get exactly. It. This program works for every child, in every school, under every circumstance, and it gets kids to reading level by third grade. It, it and now we're expanding it into math. It is incredibly cost effective. And it kind of goes back to, to basics, to, to, to the roots of reading, to the roots of, of math. It's very effective. But you have to get some more funding to, to, to get these um, AmeriCorps um, people into the, the program, the, the tutors into the program, and recruit them. And, and the legislature kind of gives us nickels and, and dimes, and, and we can raise some money, we get some federal money. But you always run up against the, the establishment. So there are those kinds of programs that we know are effective, that if you put them into the schools, they would work. I think we have to take, take a step back and say, look at, how, how does every kid today learn outside of, of the eight hours? I mean, you, every kid from the age of two knows how to swipe left or right. <laughs> they pick up a phone, they pick up an iPad, they pick up, they, they, they go to a computer, and they know that. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter. She understands how, how, how to operate this, how to get to, to a program. And I see some head shaking here, nodding yes. I mean, those a Alex get, is a young mother. Yeah, I mean, you know Mother that. of young children. They're, they're, yeah. they're grown. What's the right term? Mother of young children. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> young mother would mean I like was a, young. Like a teen bride. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a teen okay. bride. <laughs> but then they get into the classroom, and, and I'll tell you, you know, I started high school in 1964. The classroom today might you know, have a whiteboard instead of a blackboard, might have round tables and chairs instead of desks, might have iPads in, instead of a pencil and, and tablet. But what goes on in that classroom isn't terribly different from what I had in 1964. The students sit there and they act as sponges and the teacher talks. Yep. And sometimes engages, sometimes interact, but mostly talks. And that's not a knock on teachers because now they've got to get the, the kids ready for tests. What if instead of saying, you know, instead of 20 kids to a classroom, maybe we ought to have 50 kids to a classroom. But they're working in, in five pods of 10 each. So those kids that are struggling with the lessons that were taught in October, they now, under the guidance of, of really skilled teachers, can figure out independent learning programs to go back and figure out, how do I understand what we were taught in, in October at a, a pace that I can get? still being pushed, still working to standards. Some kids are working right at January level, great. Some kids are sitting there and, and they've already figured out May lessons. Do you hold them back because you got these kids still trying to figure out October? Well, today we do. Why don't we have independent learning using technology, not just an iPad to give you information, but to really design independent learning programs under the guide of an excellent teacher with the kind of paraprofessionals. So it means you know, we need some higher priced teachers, we need better technology, but it's all available. We, we need certainly more teachers of color, so you gotta figure out how to engage them, how to involve them, and you gotta figure out how do you get parents more involved? How do you, how do you get communities more involved? It's all of these things. 
but it's not just let's write a bigger check to public schools or let's just give vouchers. Those are old solutions to tomorrow's problems. We've got to figure out with the technology we have today, with the way kids learn today, with the reality of, of communities and families today, how do we make every kid succeed? And we can do it. We know how to do it. We just have to have the political will to do it. Which brings up a, a, a question. Do you think that there's a somewhat of an anti-education bias currently? It's almost like it feels like it's almost fallen out of favor in a sense. Yeah, you, you know, I think it's another part of our polarized society that I think there is that contingent of people who who are opposed to public education and and in general maybe to to educated elites as as they see them in in general and that is a problem. But I think you can go to the other side of the aisle and there is this belief that education solves everything right and and it's the same education for everybody so everybody needs to to have the same kind of curriculum during the the 12 years of of k-12 and everybody ought to go to a four-year college that's just not true I mean, th th there are good well-paying jobs going begging right now that that need a good trades apprenticeship that that need a good two-year vocational degree and, and, you know, again, we've got answers in Minnesota. The Carpenters Union in Minnesota has designed and, and runs at its own cost a really top-rate apprentice program, training program, to, to bring young people in and get them to the level of master carpenters where they can earn a really good middle-class wage. You know, I think we're going to have to take a little break, and we have, we're going to kick you out of the studio because you make too much sense and you're too moderate. <laughs> it has been a delight to be here and a great pleasure. No, Thank no, you, you get much. another 15 minutes. Okay, you're not going all right. To, <laughs> Tom, Tommy's going to interrogate you when we get back. All right. Tom here for Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning. Right now, Sabre and Bryant are teaming up to offer 0% financing for 36 months when you buy a new Bryant furnace. This is the perfect time to replace your old furnace with a new trouble-free, energy-efficient furnace from Sabre. And when you buy Bryant equipment, you're getting one of the most trusted names in the industry. This 0% offer is available for a limited time. Call Sabre Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning to find out more, and please tell them that Tom sent you. Sabre and Bryant, whatever it takes. Start the new year looking great and feel even better by losing 20 to 40 pounds with help from my friends at Ultimate, powered by Nutramost. It's Tom, and I'm thrilled to let you know that for a very limited time, you'll receive 20 to 30% off all programs with Ultimate's New Year's Resolution Sale. Do what I did and let Dan and Neil Sheehy and the staff at Ultimate help you change your relationship with food forever. With the help of Ultimate, I lost 41 pounds and another 42 pounds in each of my two 40-day programs. Debbie P. from Anoka lost 31 pounds in 43 days. Cheryl S. of Webster lost 36 pounds in 43 days. And Ron D. from Lakeville lost 57 pounds in just 43 days. Live your healthiest life starting today. Schedule an immediate consultation and receive 20 to 30% off all programs for a limited time. Call Ultimate, powered by Nutramost. 763-333-7337. You know what I really love is the fact that Doug said I was going to ask questions so he plays funeral music. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> yeah. It's Thank apparently so random. That, That's right? the introduction to Freebird, by it the is. way. <laughs> it is, yeah. Um, Tom, I do have a question for you. And, yes, and, and one of the things that I, I don't really care, I grew up in North Minneapolis, never finished high school. I got a diploma because I showed up for homeroom so they could collect the money. Way back then, it was still about the money. Um, I went to college for one day. Uh, so my question for you is, what about the cultural element? I mean, obviously... You look at spelling bees, uh, children from India or, you know, 
the families from India tend to do very well at spelling bees. Uh, Asian children do very, very well at math. There is a cultural element to all of this. What are we going to do about that? Um, I, I, you're absolutely right. And, and family and community and cultural culture play a huge role. But, but, but a couple of things to keep in mind. One is that, and, and Tom, you and I are probably pretty close in age, when, when you and I graduated, um, either legitimately or not, from, from high school, um, <laughs> you know, we, we, we could go out and, and earn a good middle-class um, uh, living through labor, yeah. through, through, through unskilled help. And, and eventually, you know, that could, could progress into a, a middle management or higher kind of profession because college wasn't as mandatory as it is today or as people think it is today that that right. path doesn't exist anymore and so that's problematic i think the second thing has happened that has happened um is is that you know in high schools today many high schools today we've virtually eliminated any path that says here's a kid who really would be good in some kind of trade in some kind of vocational work uh, but instead, we want everybody to, to be English majors, even though we really right. don't have space for English majors, and go on to a four-year college. I think we've got to change that. But then you get to the, the community, and you're absolutely right. And I, I mean, I, I don't have good answers for that. I think there are some things that we can do. Um, you know, we, uh, Again, going back to our first discussion around tax policy, I think if we had taxes like a, a bigger earned income tax credit that only goes to to people who are working I think then you you support the value of work um, and and investment and savings I think there are those kinds of things I think we do have to to acknowledge that you know a lot of the problem in many of our communities is just a matter of, of safety um, and so you got to figure out how do you make communities safer how do you support families that that, that are in stress I mean, I, I don't think there is any one simple answer, but that doesn't mean there aren't any answers, and we ought to figure out what we can right. as we do it. You know, a big part of it, Tom, is just, look, I mean, we've got to figure out how do you make sure that, that people have safe, affordable, stable housing? You know, you, you go to some schools, probably in your old neighborhood, where one-third or more of the class will change within the course of each academic year. Well, that's mm -hmm. not only a problem for that, and it's because of housing. They can't afford, their parents can't afford housing. That's not just a problem for that one-third of the kids who are moving and, and jumping around maybe two, three times a year, but it also disrupts the other two-thirds of the class because now they keep getting new students and you got to backtrack. You know, so it, right. it, it's back to, well, okay, let's use technology to figure out how you craft individual learning programs so you don't keep throwing the kids who are progressing backwards. Yeah, that makes total sense. When I went to uh, to my high school counselor to tell her I was quitting high school, she said, yeah, I kind of figured you would. I said, what do you mean? She goes, hey, do you have a cigarette? And I said, yeah. So I gave her, I, I stopped smoking when I was 21, but I gave her an old gold, and she was smoking this old gold, and she said, Tom, you should probably get a job as a factory worker because you got no shot. I will never forget that as long as I live. You know, I don't think she I've basically ever... told me. Go what? ahead, Tommy. I'm sorry. No, well, you, you don't think you've ever what? I don't think I've ever told you this story. When I was in grade school, I was in Lexington, Massachusetts, and right across uh, Route 128 was Hanscom Air Force Base. And this was in the late 60s, height of the Vietnam War. It was very active, and they're breaking the sound barrier and rattling mm -hmm. China constantly. And as a first grader, I just stared out the window and drew pictures of planes. And my dad came in for a parent-teacher conference, and they said, well, we think, we, we hate to tell you this, but we think your son might be um, kind of retarded, and maybe he could get a job working at an... This was in 1966. Oh it was a common thing. At Walzer Automotive. Right. Group. Yes, that's what he kind of explains. <laughs> and my dad was teaching at Harvard at the time. He's a developmental and cognitive psychologist, and he thought... You know, maybe I ought to test him. It's like, uh, yeah, he's not retarded. I think he's just bored. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you so, go. Anyway. Um, I think part of it for me as well is, is this whole idea. I think, Tom, that America has, and the world right now has a real problem addressing skin color. They have mm -hmm. such discomfort over it because it's a poor person thing. It's not a black only thing. 
and they're terrified to, to look at it that way. Poor kids pretty much get treated the same. I don't care what their skin color is, and I know people outside the neighborhoods don't understand that, but if you're a poor kid, you're going to get treated the same no matter what color you are, and it's not going to be good. That I will tell you, because I, I, I experienced it. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more, and in fact, I think a lot of the appeal of, of Donald Trump is to, to those parents who look at, at their kids, and, and they're mostly low-income parents, and they, they see life expectancy is declining for, for those kids. In the richest yes. country in the yep. world, they are losing lifespan. Kids mm-hmm. born in the 1940s, 90% would out-earn their parents. Kids born in the 80s, maybe at best 50% will out-earn their parents. So here you have this group of parents who say, I'm going to be the first generation of parents in this country to raise kids who are less healthy and poorer than I am. (laughs) That's that's appalling. How can I live with myself? And so here comes Donald Trump, and it is the case that, you know, when you have a tyrant who promises to to maintain and restore the old order, you vote for that tyrant. I mean, and, and, and I think that's what we got because you know that that same family, whether they're 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 black, brown, yellow, whatever, it is an economic mm-hmm. issue to a large extent, yep. and they look at fairly or unfairly, this group got that, this group got something else, this group got something else, and here I am, I've worked my butt off, I've followed all the rules, and now my kids are going to be less healthy and poorer than I am, and and yeah. uh, that that's intolerable. I can't accept that. And so they're revolt. I agree with completely. Yeah. I agree with that completely. I, I just think we we need to toughen up and stuff. The, this whole thing, and again, I look at it just as a kid who grew up in North Minneapolis on Plymouth Avenue and, you know, not a lot of money and all the rest of it. I listen to these politicians nowadays and I go, man, I know you're just trying to get me to vote for you so you could make money. So <laughs> stop pretending that you care. Right, right, right. You know, right. and... And I, I just, I would like to get some people involved who are not in it for the money, but to actually serve. That would be wonderful. I, I think, I'd be interesting to, if you guys agree or disagree, but I, I think that's one of the reasons that Minnesota politics functions much better than the federal level, because it's, nobody's going to the state legislature to get rich. Most of them are taking a pay cut yeah, because it, you yeah, know, it's, a, it's really a part-time job. That pays forty or fifty grand a year, and they're mostly professional people that could earn a lot more than that if they just, you know, ran PR firms or were dentists and so on and so forth. So I, I don't know if that's right or not, but it's you know there's so much big money in politics at the federal level, which is missing from the state for oh. the most part. Well, it is, although it's starting to change. I mean, we oh, we now have legislative races. I need a legislative cocktail. races where a million dollars is being spent. Mostly oh. by outside interest right. on both sides, but the price of a legislative seat in a state that has 201 legislative seats, you know, now in some cases is approaching a million dollars. That is going to change God. the dynamics, and I, and I think you're you're right that Minnesota has benefited from the, this culture of a part-time government, um, where where people do feel a civic obligation to to contribute but only for a defined period of time, and then go back to, to their profession. Unfortunately, we're losing that, I, I feel. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. I, one of the most interesting plane conversations I ever had was the summer of 16. I, we, we owned dealerships in Wichita as well. We just bought them. And I flew down, and my seatmate turned out to be the CTO of uh, Coke Industries. Mm-hmm. And so you know, a long conversation, and I asked him a lot of questions. And the election came up, and they said, yeah, the Koch brothers, like the rest of the world, including Donald Trump, didn't think that he had a chance to win. Said, we're we're spending all our money on grassroots small races. That's how we see the, yeah, right. the future of conservatism. So Right. And, and I could see that. It's been successful. I mean, they, you know, they up until 2018, where things really started to change uh, dramatically, in part as a reaction to, to Trump. Um, but, yes, I mean, Republicans had two-thirds of the the gubernatorial offices. They had a a significant majority of state legislatures, uh, and they were able then to to drive a lot of changes at the the state level. Now, 2018 changed a lot of that, and the governors are about evenly divided, and the legislatures are about evenly divided. Um, You know, but you you look at Minnesota, and we do still have a propensity for 
we want some balance in government. Yeah. We don't want to give it to everybody. So since 2010, for all of the, the, the tribalism and the partisan and the, the polarization and the money, every single election since 2010, we have changed control of at least one house of the legislature. That's pretty amazing, yeah. you know, and and I think it is a large part that that we want balance in government. We want some some checks and balances. Okay, I got one more question for you. Uh, Two thousand twenty Democratic ticket. Who do you see on the top, and who's the VP? Um, I, I my feeling is that it's going to go into the convention without a, a, a clear winner. I, I think it's going to be a, a, a year in which the convention is going to have a significant role. And although the Democrats changed a lot of the rules after 2016... Because there's no super delegates are, I was just going to say, there are still some. Oh, there are. Yes, and, and when you get into a convention, they have a lot of, of influence. Why don't you still. explain what a super delegate is? Well, so a is super delegate, the, yeah, the Democrats um, gave um, delegate status, automatic delegate status, to elected officials, party officials, and so they automatically had a seat at the convention, and of course they are party loyalists. Um, and so a candidate like Hillary Clinton comes along, and there was no chance that Bernie Sanders was going to because win Because of the superdelegates. Right. I mean, they're, they're, they're traditional Democrats, tried and true Democrats. They are there because of their party loyalty. They're not going to jeopardize that. They've diminished that some, and they've cut back some of it, but, but there still are superdelegates, and they still are traditional Democrats. Um, so I, I, I think we're going to get into the, the convention, um, and then people are going to start to say, who's the best chance we have to defeat um, Donald Trump? And, and I don't think it's going to be Bernie Sanders. You know, I think it's still going to, to end up being Joe Biden, Although, boy, I mean, he's he's such a wild card given his his flubs and some of the issues that he carries. Some of the he makes Dan Quayle look eloquent. Oh, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, who, who does he pick as VP then? Because I think it'll be an interesting choice of either Bernie or Joe win the presidency. Because it, they, it, due to their age, they could be one term. Absolutely, maybe. absolutely. So, I, you know, if it's uh, Joe Biden, well, then you know the politics being what they are, you, you have to have gender balance, you, yeah. you have to have a woman. Um, it'd be nice if, I think for, for the uh, balance, if it were a, a woman from the South or the West, um, but it could be Amy Klobuchar, I mean, yeah. it could be somebody from the Midwest. I think she's acquitted herself well. I think she, she's made a lot of strides as a national candidate, and I think she would be amenable to running as, as vice president um, with a Joe Biden, in part for the reason you mentioned. <laughs> He's not going to be a two-term president. Not likely. No, not, not, neither no. one of them, right. I would think. Right. Right. I mean, that's a tough job. I mean, you look oh. at the young men that went into the office, like uh, George and uh, Barack Obama, Absolutely. and they come out eight years later and look like they've been dragged behind a truck. I, I'm just amazed that, you know, they're still standing as candidates. I mean, you, you just the, the grind of running a national campaign, I know what it took to... to devote a year of my life to running a statewide campaign at 60 years old. They're doing it on a national basis for, for two, three, four years at 70 plus years yep. old. Yeah, um, man, I mean, that's that's a lot of wear and tear. And then, as you said, you, you go into the, the Oval Office and every minute of every day, you're under the most intense pressure. So can here's imagine. my theory about the first day as the president. You know, when Obama ran, he was going to close down Guantanamo Bay and all this I, sort of stuff. I think the first day, the the grown-ups take you in the back room and say, okay, here's the secret folder. Read all this because this is what's going on <laughs> right. in the world. And the president goes, why the fuck did I take <laughs> <Yeah>. this job? <laughs> Holy smokes. <laughs> why didn't I get this before? Yeah, Tom, yeah. it's been great having you on. I can't believe the hour went by this quickly. Uh, we'll have you back again. I really enjoyed the conversation, and I learned a lot. We've got some interesting guests coming up in the next couple of weeks, uh, not political ones. We have a cross-country truck driver next week, big KQ uh, listener. Eddie will be on the show so all the truck drivers can harass him. F uh, following week, uh, Mick Sterling, local music legend, uh, founder oh. of Mick Sterling and the Stud Brothers, and has a really a cool 501c charity that he started himself locally to help uh, in need families. He'll be in in two weeks. So come on back next week for more fun with Walzer Automotive Group's Car Selling Secrets.